1: And now join Kevin Hart as he dives into the minds of some of your favorite celebrities.
0: This is Gold Mines with Kevin Hart. Oh yeah. World, it's me. And you know when you hear my voice, normally you hear a high level of enthusiasm. And that enthusiasm is matched with the energy and feeling of what I feel you deserve because I know what you're about to get. And that's another great guess. This is gold mines and on gold mines, we do what? We get inside the minds of amazing people. And that's the beauty. The beauty of the people is that there's such a variety. There's such a variety of these amazing minds. They cover so much ground, so much ground. Today's amazing mind, man, God, I mean, how much ground? Can one cover because they've covered so much. I mean, when we talk about the world of directing, producing, writing, even at one point diving into the space of stand up, uh, you know, a guy who has covered a lot of ground and who I feel has done such an amazing job with showing how valuable a relationship with an actor and or actress can be when managed and handled correctly. Ladies and gentlemen, we got the man, the myth, the legend, Paul Fee oh, on gold mines.
1: Kevin, my God, I can't possibly live up to that, my friend. You are so great.
0: <laughs> what do you mean? You've already, you've already lived up to it, man. This is uh, one that I'm excited about. And, and oh. you know what? I, I say this all the time, right? And, and the reason why I say I'm excited to talk to my guests, because I make sure I really express this, I man. I'm Genuinely, genuinely a fan of the work or of the thinking that's attached to a lot of these different individuals that have touched gold mines. And you, my friend, I'm, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about. I mean, you know, of course, your resume is outstanding. You know, when it, when it, just comes to movies when it comes to comedy. We can go to the beginning, just the things that you have touched. There's such a nice synergy and alignment with some of the things that I thought I would do that I did get a chance to do that I got a chance to do later on and you were attached to. I don't even know if you know this, but Freaks and Geeks, of course, the show that you were attached to, Mm -hmm. Judd Apatow, that world of Mm -hmm. personnel later went and developed the show Undeclared, which was like the spin-off. And that was like, one of my first big breaks on TV. I remember <laughs> that, my friend. I remember it really well. <laughs> it, it was a moment uh, where I kind of felt like, okay, things are starting to happen. The doors yeah. are starting to open. And, you know, who knew at the time that all talent attached to Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared would grow and become stars in their own right? I mean, then there that whole cast from back then.
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, what a sort of, you know, farm team it was for all these people that went on to just. I mean, surpass what I—I I, I don't even really say what we thought that would happen to them because they were all so talented. You kind of knew it was there, but you don't have any faith in the industry that the industry is going to recognize that, you know. Mm-hmm. And they've all just taken off. I mean, my God, look at Seth Rogen. I was just saying to my editor today. I, I go like, is there anything Seth isn't doing right now? Literally, he's starring in stuff, he's writing stuff, he's producing, he's directing. But I, I love it. It just makes me so happy. It's like being a proud parent, you know. They've all gone off. Nobody's in prison. <laughs> it all worked out well.
0: Do you realize how much? Much of your involvement sparked the interest to do so much more for those young actors and actresses at the time. Like, have you really thought about it before we get into the landscape of all that you've done? I want to start here because, you know, a lot of people follow the trajectory of what they've seen work, like what they've really, really seen happen. And you acted as an example for a lot of them. Have you really thought about that?
1: But well, you know what we did. What Jed and I really wanted to do is bring them into the process. You know, because when you're doing a TV show, the actors are as much a part of the process, clearly, but a part of the creative and, and the genesis of the stories as we, the writers and producers, are. You know, and I was an actor forever, like 15 years before I went behind the camera. And you know, I'd work on these TV shows with really good people, but it was always, and if you've been through this too, of like you can't talk to the producers, you can't question the script if you want to change your word. You've got to take a meeting with them. And I was just like, well, that's, they're not Shakespeare, clearly. So I think we could, you know, we have to inhabit these characters. We could make them better. And so all of that kind of just made us want to bring these at the time, kids, we called them into the process because we were feeding off of them too. And we demystified the process for them at the same time. You know, but I, I'll never forget, I mean, going not only talking about Seth, but after we did the pilot, we got picked up and we decided we were going to do these kind of promotional videos for the show that were funny that we wrote. And I remember Seth coming up to Judd and I, you know, he's 16 years old. He's like, Yeah, my friend and I are writing a script about. Two guys trying to go buy beer, and I was like, I was kind okay, Seth. Whatever. Well, that was super bad, you know. Wow. So the seeds were there, you know. And then even John Francis Daly, who was 13 years old, mm-hmm. I was just in Belfast shooting a movie last year. He was shooting a movie called Dungeons Dragons. So now he's a big time mm-hmm. director, and you know, and the whole cast just on from there. They're all successful.
0: All successful. How did the world of you and Judd start? How did that relationship happen? Well, we were stand-ups
1: together. We were always older than Judd. I think Judd's like four or five years younger than my group and I were. But we got to know each other. It was back in the, the mid-'80s. And we just started playing at the same clubs. And then Steve Higgins, you know, who runs SNL now, and mm-hmm. born, and his brother, Dave Higgins, and then Dave gruber and all these people. We all had this place called The Ranch, which was in the back of the valley. And it was a place where we would all hang out. We'd all do our stand-up at night, come back And just stay up all night playing poker and drinking coffee and making each other laugh until the sun came up. And we did that for years. And so it was there that I kind of, I befriended Judd and we realized we had a very similar sense of humor. And I remember saying at one point to the guys, because they would all make fun of him because he was younger than they were. And I remember saying at one point, like, you guys better be nice to this guy. He's going to run the town. He just had that kind of weird showbiz maturity because he had grown up in like a showbiz family and his Mm -hmm. his father was a lawyer and all that stuff, a showbiz lawyer. So, a music lawyer, I should say. So yeah, it was just that being in sync with each other. And then I would read scripts that he was doing. I I would give him scripts that I wrote. And then he put me in stuff. You know, I was in heavyweights that he produced. But when I wrote the pilot for Freaks and Geeks... I sent it to him because I knew he had the similar sense of humor. He would get this and he loved it. And he's the one that kind of took it to DreamWorks and bought it. And then we took it to NBC and then the rest is, you know, kind of history.
0: When did you know that you, that you cracked the coat, right? Like when you talk about acting for 10 to 15 years, you talked about dabbling in the, in the world of stand up, right? Well, Mm -hmm. there's a discovery that happens at some point in all of our careers. Now discovery is highlighted when the light bulb goes off of, oh my God, this is going to be my thing. This is what I know I can do, what I love, but this is where my road to success is. When did that happen for you? When did that light bulb go off?
1: Well, it took a long time because, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, starting when I was like five, I just, I wanted to be in comedy. I, you know, I was in the school play and got a lot of laughs and that just really, you know, how we get addicted to laughter, obviously. And so, but to me, it was all about, I was going to be a performer. First, I wanted to be like Groucho Marx, you know, but then mm-hmm. I wanted to be a stand-up and then I wanted to be Woody Allen because he was writing and directing and starring in his own stuff. So the road was kind of doing drama club, obviously. And then I started doing stand-up when I was 15 years old in Detroit, uh, you know, it was terrible. You know, I had to take my parents the club to get in because I was underage, but I got you know bit by that bug, then kind of moved out to California to become a tour guide because I wanted to get into showbiz and I knew it wasn't going to happen in Detroit where I was from. And then when I was there, I found out about USC film school, but I was also doing stand up at the comedy store at the time or, you know, open mic nights and just trying to get in and, and kind of got mm-hmm. in the belly room and all that stuff. So you know, making my way up slowly, but then learned about film school, went to film school, but as an actor thinking it would make me better as an actor, but got you know bit by sort of the, the writing-directing bug too. Mm-hmm. But then did stand-up for five years. It was pretty successful as like a middle and then worked my way up to headliner. And then I kind of didn't enjoy being a headliner at the end of this five years because I found it very lonely, weirdly. You know, because if you're the opener in the middle, all your friends are there watching your sets. You hear them laughing. You go back. You talk about it, all that. By the time I went up to being a headliner, you come off stage and everybody's gone. You meet them at the diner, but they didn't watch your set. So you kind of Mm -hmm. don't have anybody to talk about with. And I find that really depressing. And I realized, oh, I need sort of the gratification of my peers as much as I do of an audience. So it kind of made me go, I finally reached my goal of being a headliner and I don't think I want to do it anymore. So that's Mm -hmm. when I pivoted solely into being an actor. And it was a character actor for 15 years. And honestly, what kicked me out of that nest because I, I loved it. I loved acting. There's nothing better than, you know, when you get a role and you're like, oh, I'm taken care of, especially like on the TV series. But every time the show would get canceled, I was like a regular on five different TV shows, they would always get canceled. And then finally, I was on one show called Sabrina the Teenage Witch, mm-hmm. which turned out to be a hit. And I'm like, mm-hmm. fine, I'm taken care of for seven years. End of that first season, they go, oh, we're going to write you out of the show. We don't know how to (laughs) write for your character anymore. But it was good because I was wanting to get behind the camera. So that was what kicked me out of the nest. And that was the moment, although I had a terrible year after that because nothing was happening. But at least I knew I was on the right track, I thought.
0: I mean, all of those things, honestly, they act as a a sharpening mechanism for the tools that you would need to do the things you're doing now at a very high level. You know, when you talk about stand-up comedy and understanding just the art of stand-up, more importantly, when you think about writing, you think about those writing rooms and you think about the success of them, they come because of the group atmosphere that's created and the ping-pong effect. We're able to channel energy, throw ideas out, and everybody's putting something into the pot, and it's a fun experience that you're able to take home that night and, I guess you can say, grow on. You can can take the world of stuff that was given, and now at night you're energized to do more, create more, and come back the next day with more at the table. Your relationships, and I can say the way that you handle these relationships behind the camera while working with your actors and actresses. I mean, of course, it comes from you just understanding the, the world of acting. Now you talk about the low that you had after going away from that show. You said there was a rough year. Now you're talking about the heart. Your your heart now can go out to those that appreciate the work that are looking for work. Like you know, there's a well rounded world of knowledge that you have attached to the business now,
1: right? Yeah, and that's what's kind of nice. You know, when people make it really young, that that's cool for them. But that's why I think sometimes they have a lot of problems because they haven't been on that road and know how tough it is to have done it and have put the math together to figure out, like you say, you know, what makes us successful, what takes us to the successful place. But everything I did, stand-up, actor, writing, you know, just writing to write, I use all of that now. I wouldn't be, you know, not that I'm a great director, but I wouldn't be as effective as a director if I... Didn't understand what actors go through. If I didn't do stand up and understand how you build an act and you go, like, okay, that joke didn't work, let's put in this one. You know, our test screenings are just literally working out a stand up act. You know, we shoot all these extra jokes, and if you put one up in front of an audience and you tape the audience, okay, that joke didn't work, let's trade it out for this one. So it, it's all kind of the same muscle, but then you do need the heart, like you say, and it is those tough times that give you the sympathy for the human condition Mm. that comedy has to have. You know, comedy Mm -hmm. can't just be jokes. It falls apart. It just becomes boring. You know, I mean, look, I love a Marx Brothers movie, and there's clearly not much emotion in those, and those are really fun, you know, but they're also like an hour long. (laughs) Today, audiences won't put up with just jokes, jokes, jokes. They need to latch into those characters, and that's the stuff that you get from those low moments.
0: You've done a great job of that. Your comedy films, they've all had a significant amount of heart, right? Like you do get to the point where you're laughing, but then then there's this moment of care and understanding what the trials and tribulations of the main character is. Yeah. You're along that journey. And then this is, I think this is kind of where we've seen our comedies kind of grow throughout the years. I mean, look, I'm 43. So it's not like I come with this world of, you know, crazy film knowledge and I've been doing it for 80 years. Back in the day is what we've done, but (laughs) I'm pretty educated on, you know, on comedy movies and the ones that were made and and how they've grown and how we've gotten a little more creative in telling those stories, while at the same time pounding the screen for laughter. When you got to a certain point, right, the same way I'm talking about, like, okay, this is what you wanted to do, you now found that you have that. This is your creating hub. You're in love with it. What was the film that acted as your launching pad and your eyes, right? Because there's a lot of successes under your umbrella, and sometimes it's not the one that got all the bells, whistles, and financial success. Sometimes it's the one that allowed you to be as creative as you wanted to be. What was the one that you felt acted as your template to going oh wow i'm going to be able to work in this town i'm going to be able to do what i want and it's based off of this work
1: it's an interesting great question because obviously i could pivot to say bridesmaids because that was such a success Mm -hmm. but honestly the thing i learned the most on was the very first movie i made that no one's ever seen because i made it out of pocket and it never got distribution. But this thing I wrote called Life Sold Separately, I had $30,000 coming off the of Supreme of the Teenage Witch, and I wanted to make a movie and wrote this movie that takes place in a field. One day, four people show up in a field with some information that a UFO is going to come and take them away because they're tired of the earth. And I had six days to shoot it. And I remember getting there. The first day went pretty well. And I was, I was starring in it too. So that, take that as whatever mistake <laughs> you will. So the first day went pretty well. It was I schedule and all that but then the second day i just fell behind and i got way behind on the day and i had this ad who was a really great guy my assistant director but definitely knew how green i was and he was kind of gunning for me and i remember like we got to lunch and he's like you're way behind you like catastrophic and i remember like going like what am i going to do and had this moment where i was like maybe i'll just call off the movie like i was going into this sort of like wow yeah, like kid, like panic of, I just want to go home and, you know, (laughs) crawl under the covers. And I remember going like, wait, just walk away, walk away. So I was like, you know what? Give me one sec. Walked off in the middle of this field, trying to look thoughtful. And I was just going like, don't panic, don't panic. What are you going to do? And remember going like, if you don't figure this out. You will never get to fulfill your I dream of that. making movies.
0: <laughs> yeah. I love that.
1: Yeah. And I, I literally went like, I know how to solve this. I came back to him and said like, here's what we're going to do. We got this four page scene. I'm going to shoot it as a wonder, <laughs> you know, and we did. And I got back on schedule. And that was, that was the moment when I go, I can do this.
0: I mean, I love that. That was your gut check moment. Yeah, There's a gut check moment of, am I going to fold mm. and be sad on or am I going to stand tall? Yeah. Am I going to stand tall in this and, in- this moment that that can and and most likely is my moment my defining yeah. moment
1: yeah if you if you open the door to falling apart you're never going to close that door it will always Absolutely. be a door you can open it will be an option even though it's a bad option you go like well you know i'm, I'm gonna fall apart and you can't do it not in this business
0: the word of directing the crazy thing about directing is like when i say i've always respected the role of a director but you know, Throughout the years of my career, I not only respect it, I value it at the highest level because the idea of control attached to a production, the amount of control that a director has in the questions on a day-to-day that you are tasked <laughs> with answering, and from the smallest to the biggest, this vision of execution that is in a director's head. From the way that the walls look or the doorknobs or the texture of a carpet in a room to the how many pieces of art are up versus down. I mean, there's so much. It's one that I think it can get you to a place of pulling that hair out. Will you say that that was like, of course, that's your money. That's $30,000 of your hard-earned money. You're putting it on the table. This is what you're going to be. But then you get to the point now, like you said, Bridesmaid's success, Well, now studios are throwing bigger bigger budgets your way. Yeah. So what was the budget that you felt was the one that really like made you pucker up a little bit? What was the <laughs> – when you said, you know, you're now managing said budget. You're now in control. This is not a $20 million movie. This is not a $15 million movie. We're not throwing real – Millions and millions of dollars. What was the one that you took on, and after taking it yeah. on, you had a oh shit. <laughs> Uh, shit. it's funny because like you always, you hear these budgets
1: when you're starting out, you know, when, you know, my first movie costs $30,000, you're like, can you imagine having a 10 million dollar budget? And then when you get that, what you realize is how fast it's gone. So mm-hmm. if you first go like, that's so much money. And then it's like, wait, what? We're out of money already because you don't break down how much everybody's getting paid and that kind of thing. So, but I think for me, the first time I went like, Ooh, yikes was when I did spy. You know, because I'd done Bridesmaids, which was, you know, we did a fairly low budget for a studio film. The Heat wasn't that much more. But then Spy, which I wrote also, you know, was solo wrote. That was like wow! They're re- they're gonna give like sixty five million dollars to make this movie. Mm-hmm. That was sobering, but it was also exciting too because I knew I could do stuff. But again, it always goes back. You always go like, now I can do what I want, and, and constantly you get these things like we're over budget. You know, God damn it! Yeah. You know, so you never have enough money. <laughs> but I will go back to one thing. You know, you're talking about like the responsibility that you feel. The most responsibility I feel is to the actors in the movie because. Mm. As we all know, a director can make you look great or a director can make you look terrible. And it's all about tone and their sense of humor meets your sense of humor. And if they think something's funny, that you go like, that's not funny. And for me as a director, if an actor suddenly goes like, I don't think I trust your sense of humor, then I'm dead in the water, you know? Mm. But at the same time, I need to kind of go like, try this, try that if it doesn't work, I swear to you, I will not use it, you know, and that's what I do a lot of times because we'll test stuff and then test screen and go, try that. And sometimes it gets the biggest laugh in the world and you didn't even expect it in something somebody didn't want to do. And then the other time you go like, we're all like, this is going to kill. And then it gets nothing. So I just always am so aware of, you know, it sounds Machiavellian, but how much power I have over everybody's careers in this moment. Because fuck it up, they're going to make them look bad, you know? Absolutely.
0: You know, when I was talking earlier on in the conversation, I was like, look, there's so much synergy between you and I, and it's like, you know, it's a discovery and it's one that I've kind of like realized. And another piece of it is, you know, my relationship with my director that I feel helped launch and elevate my career. I'm talking about Tim Story. Oh, um yeah. Tim's story we did a movie called Think like a man and mm-hmm. it was an ensemble movie and in that ensemble movie the way it was written it was I was the comedy relief in the movie and we had an amazing cast that allowed me to get off like to really elevate the material improv, stay within the, the lines, of course, but they allow yeah. me to throw the bells and whistles. And I was talking to Gabrielle Union, who was a guest uh, on Gold Mines not too long ago. And we were laughing just looking back that because I was like, it was the director, it was the cast. Everybody played a major part in that. Yeah. But then Tim and myself, after, we were like, we gotta work again. We can't like lose this. It was such a great experience in yeah. working with you. We gotta figure it out again. and that we did. And then we did it again for you. What was the thing with you and Melissa? How did that, how did you both walk away from Bridesmaids and immediately go, we can't leave this here. We can't walk away from this set and say, this is the tail end of our relationship. I enjoy working with the entire cast, (laughs) but I feel like you and I can do more. How was that transition made what was the road to the next between the two of you
1: yeah again it's kind of you find somebody that you are really in sync with everybody in that movie was so great and i was in sync with all of them but somehow you you connect with somebody that you agree a hundred percent on if something's too big too small and yet you can push each other and go like, oh, I thought that was gonna be good. Oh, but I trust you, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. what our relationship has always been. And, And so it was kind of this, oh, I can't let go of this person. But the irony though, is that every movie she and I have done together, we never set out to do together. You know, wow. the heat was sent to me as as a, a script kind of for other people. And I knew that Sandra Bullock was attached to it, but the other role had, was written kind of with somebody else in mind. And I was reading, going, oh, this would be really funny for that person. And then like about 20 pages in, I was like, wait a minute, this is Melissa. And mm-hmm. when I started reading it with Melissa's voice, it just got a thousand times funnier. Mm-hmm. And so we did that. And then when I wrote spy, I wrote that for somebody else who then wasn't available and I was submitting it to somebody else for it. And I, and Melissa was over for dinner. I go, like, Oh, I wrote this spy script. Cause I thought she was busy on her TV show, uh, Mike and Molly at the time. Mm-hmm. And I told her about it and she goes like, that sounds really fun. Can I read it? I go Well, sure. If you want. And she called me the next day, like, I want to do this, you know? So I was like, Oh, okay. And it pivoted that way. And then Ghostbusters was the same thing. I went into that going like, okay, I'm going to work with all new people. And then you know, that somebody is going to be, you know, so in sync and make your life not any harder than it needs to be, because as, a, as we both know, making a movie, you have to complain about this to people who have, you know, <laughs> tough jobs, but it's tough because the pressure yeah. is so high, you know? Absolutely.
0: The, How did you crack the code on the sample, right? Like there's a few directors that do it really well mm-hmm. and do it consistently well. Right. And that means yeah. you're telling the story, Of course, that has to be told, but at the same time, you're highlighting the characters and making sure that each character has an opportunity to stand out, be tracked, and have a moment of care, which is an amazing talent. An amazing talent. I mean, I just got to work with another director that I feel does it at a a high level as well, F. Gary Gray, who's done amazing um, with Ensemble, you know, that thriller, that tone and texture of a movie that he knows he can put his name on. You've done the same thing Mm -hmm. with Ensemble, and you've done a phenomenal job with the female ensembles, right? What is it about the ensemble that attracts you the most? And is it something that you're looking out for, right? Like when you're creating, do they start out as maybe one or two handers and grow into that? Or is it always something that you're like, no, I'm ready to do another ensemble piece because that's where I thrive, that's what I love.
1: Well, the story dictates all that, you know? And I would say even the best ensembles are really about one character and the people around them who mm-hmm. are in service of that character. So, you know, if you look at Bridesmaids, that's an ensemble, but everything pings off of Kristen Wiig's character. Mm-hmm. And what she's surrounded by are the various aspects of relationships and love. One is the old, tired, married one. One is the newlyweds. One's the single, you know, who who's not going to do it. You know, and one's the person who's going to get married. And so, you know, but the story has to support that. You can't just kind of jam other characters in. But at the same time, I just want my movies to be filled with great people, great characters mm-hmm. who are fun. Mm-hmm. And so even when I'm doing something like a two-hander, to me it's an ensemble because I think everybody who's coming in has to be a home run, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, when he did The Heat, two of the people in the Mullins family, Nate Corddry and one of the other cast members, didn't even have lines in the script. And I was just wow. like just show up and we're just, we're going to mess around we'll and figure they both, it out. Yeah. And they both came up with like lines that were like, you know, the favorite lines in the movie kind of thing. So, you know, I, I think, Ensemble, it can be a very uh, uh, fluid word, but it's fun. But you just have to make sure that they all have a purpose for being there because they'll, the, you get cut out of the movie if you don't, you know, because we get the editing room, we're just trying to weed stuff out because no matter how short we try to make our movies, they're always too long. So we have to kind of keep pulling stuff out. So only thing that survives is the most essential relationships and characters who have a purpose, why they come in, what they're giving in a movie. You know, TV, you got a little more time to kind of, spend on an on a dig- digression or something like that but you know just having talented people in every single role that's the key and that to me is catnip i don't like what i call they went that away roles which is like you watch a movie and you go like oh that was a local hire and somebody just kind of like hello bill you know and uh, now. yeah, yeah now. totally but- like give them a moment <laughs> like even that person's yeah. supposed to go like they went that way like they should do something funny or something interesting you're like oh that that character i would follow that character
0: somewhere <laughs> yeah well, are you still having a good time? Are you still having oh, yeah. a good time within the crowd? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, after doing something for so long, of course, you reach a point where it's like, okay, I'm doing it. Uh, am I still excited about doing it? Am I still showing up every day? You're saying, yes, you are. What is it that you feel you haven't done that you want to do?
1: Oh, there's so much. I mean, you know, I'm personally kind of working my way through the genres. I, I just love genre movies, and in comedy, and you've done these too. It's fun to go like I'm going to go into the spy thing. I'm going to go into the you know the cop thing, and then we can play with the tropes and twist them and make them funny. You know, so you know, I'd dying to do a musical. Always want to do musical. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I, I can love see to. it. i I, I would love it personally uh you know but like a big sci-fi epic i want to do a western simple favor was a fun thriller to do i want to work in that world but like the movie i'm just finishing now or just in post on now is like a big comedy version of like the purge (laughs) it's just like a jackie chan movie so for me what i don't like doing is just repeating myself or repeating a genre like it's not interesting to go like oh you had great success with that you want to do that again it's yeah, I, that's why I haven't done a sequel yet, although I might be doing a sequel to A Simple Favor in the fall. We'll see what happens with The Strike. Yeah, in general, I just want to always keep challenging myself and find new things.
0: Is there a favor between the world of producing, writing, and directing? Like, Is there, is there one that gets you a little more than the other? Well, it's gotta be directing, you
1: know, I mean, I, cause I, I, produce my own stuff and I do a lot of writing on my stuff if I don't write the script itself. But to me, it's all in service of the director, you know, okay. me as the director. And, and I've been very lucky. I've had great producing partners who, you know, take the mundane day to day and the, the crap that you have to deal with on the side. And it allows me to just be creative and still think like a producer. I'm a very responsible director because I'm a producer. So I'm not the person who's like, I don't care what the time is we're going over. It's like, I'm my advice to, to all young directors is buy yourself a really nice watch. Cause if you're a good director, you'll be staring at it all day. Absolutely,
0: that's all <laughs> You're very conscious of the time. You're very mm-hmm. conscious of your partner's money because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you want to make your partner money so that you're allowed to be put back in a position to yeah. make money. That's the no brainer. Uh, sometimes gets looked past. Yeah. More Gold Mines with Kevin Hart after this. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba.
1: Now more from Kevin Hart on Gold Mines.
0: I'm going to highlight something that I think has been highlighted, but I don't know if it's highlighted enough. An amazing dresser you are. (laughs) I mean, you are a very tailored man. You have been throughout the duration of just your time in entertainment. What is it about the idea of being buttoned up And dress to the nines. What is it about you and the clothes, man?
1: You know what I? When I was growing up, I read a biography of Groucho Marx, who was my hero when I was a kid, and it said in there, Groucho never trusted a man who didn't dress well. So I was Mm. like, oh, well, I got to dress well. But then I used to watch old movies with my mom from the 30s and 40s with you know Cary Grant and you know Fred Astaire, and they were especially Cary Grant with those double-breasted suits, and he looked so cool. And then one of my favorite movies was Eight and a Half, so you know got Marcello Mastroianni in this beautiful suit and all that. And then I would look at pictures from like Hollywood books, Behind the scenes, and you would see all the old directors wearing suits and ties, mm-hmm. and so I was just like, "Well, that's what a director does," you know. That to me, that was what you had to do. So when I got to Hollywood and suddenly realized people were directing, you know, in shorts and in you know baseball caps, I was like, "Oh, I want them to look like those pictures of Hitchcock, <laughs> and, you know, John Ford and, and Howard Hawks and all that." So I just kind of it just became a thing, you know. When I did Freaks and Geeks, you know, granted I actually dressed in jeans and like t-shirts and all that because. I was trying to connect to a high school version of me that didn't really exist because mm-hmm. I dressed up in high school, but I was like, I'm doing about the freaks and the geeks. So, so I kind of connected with that. But once that show was over, I was like, you know what, I'm going back to being in suits and ties. I just feel more like the adult. Mm-hmm. And we get on a set, you know, I'm the captain of the ship. And, and as I like to say, if I got on a ship and the captain was wearing sweatpants, I'd probably get off the ship.
0: I mean, dude, it's so dope because, you know, as a fan of just the history of entertainment, when you do go back and you look at pictures from back in the day, there's so many different things that stand out, right? And yeah. when you're talking yeah. about the look, I'm a big Rat Pack fan. Mm-hmm. I'm oh, a Rat yeah. Pack fan, yeah. Yeah, totally. right? So, totally. So, like, when you see those, like, you know, behind the scenes pictures of Frank and Sammy and just mm-hmm. the rest of the pack and in Vegas. Oh, yeah. They really gave you a different feeling as to what Vegas was like. When you're yeah. telling the story or you're selling the story that you want to be told, what's your look that's gonna match it? And your look, man, I, I'm such a fan of it. I'm a fan of the dressed and tailored, the tailored individual. Like it's it's so dope because it's so defining or it's adding to the definition to who you already are. Well, it,
1: it was the traditional look of adults back then. Mm-hmm. Do you think along the Rat Pack was going, you know, forties, but really the fifties and into the sixties, early 60s. Like that's how adults dressed. You know, if you look at pictures from old cocktail parties mm-hmm. and people, everybody's in suits and ties and all that. And it was really just the 60s kind of ushered in the hippies and all that, which was a counter, you know, against the patriarch. And I thought that was great. But what happened is then we lost all that stuff trying to not be the previous generation. Mm-hmm. And I go like, that's really cool, but don't, pulled the clothes into that because the clothes didn't have anything to do with it. It's just assholes were wearing the clothes. So reclaim the clothes from the people you didn't like and make them cool again. You know, so so that's why I can't give up on sort of, you know, dressing and plus now I always feel like it's kind of an old-fashioned, like, guys, my, like, I'm 60 now, so guys my age are like, I'm never wearing a suit and tie. And you're like, well, dude, like, you're not really, you know, proving a point to anybody <laughs> other mean, than that you're a slob.
0: <laughs> I mean, dude, like, you're proving an. Amazing- amazing point. And I mean, I don't know what the conversation is or has been around you, but I would assume that your loved ones have commented on it and are just as big a fans of it as I am. Like, I'm really a fan. I'm telling you, man, I'm a guy that loves clothes. I love to get dressed. So uh, watching and, and, and and seeing somebody admire it the same, it's just, it's a dope thing. Oh, now, thanks. we stayed in the business. We've talked about the business. And I mean, goodness gracious, such a, an amazing, just, I guess you could say just a foundation you've given on just your road to like now and, and your love for it and the chemistry and energy that you've had in the world of Melissa, which is one thing that I love and hmm. that writing and the producing, but outside the business, you have to have a go-go as well. Yeah. You know, what does Paul do outside? What is the thing that acts as a mind clearing mechanism for you? What do you do outside of him? Yeah, well, I,
1: as <laughs> weird as it sounds, I eat and drink. You know, that yeah. to me is, you know. That doesn't I mean, sound
0: weird, Paul. I don't think you. it's weird
1: at all. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I, I should say, I, I go and meditate on a mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, no, I, I get a really nice restaurant and then have a martini. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that to me, that's all the reward. Kind of we're working for this stuff and I want to like just let it go at the end of the day. That's why I work French hours where we do like 10 hours straight and then we just drop everything and then we're done so I can go out to dinner, have a drink and all that. So I just really like, and you know, maybe it goes back to our love of the rat pack too. Like it just seems cool. Like afterwards, like, let's have a, a drink or, you know, or a scotch or something. I just find that so relaxing. I love sitting around and talking with people or sometimes I'll go to restaurants just by myself and I love kind of just watching
0: people. Mm-hmm. You know what? I
1: just really, I'm almost like a, like an energy vamp. Empire, you know, where you like, I draw off of people's kind of just life force because I, I just I get like it. being around them, you know?
0: Yeah, I you know? get it. I mean, that's what a person's person does, yeah. right? Like I, I have a weird balance of that where, you know, I like the foundation of people. I like the energy of people, but then there's times where I do have to take a step back yeah. and remove myself just to make sure that I'm giving myself some time or yeah. the kids, the wife, right? Like, you know, I got, I got a younger ones, So I got to make sure that I'm reserving some of that energy, but that idea of a lounge and just enjoying a nice setting, it is uh, invigorating, right? It is a nice piece of energy that's attached to that environment. Yeah, um, Are you a, are you a foodie? Are you a crazy food guy?
1: Yeah. Oh, I love food. Yeah. No, I, I'm, it, my theater is going to a nice restaurant. When I go to New York, I'm always want to see plays. I never do because you either got to pick a nice dinner or a theater. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to miss a nice dinner. tonight.
0: Yeah. You're going to choose a dinner every single time. <laughs> yeah, oh
1: yeah, totally. Always.
0: <laughs> are you a cook? Are you a guy that's in the kitchen as well or no? Yeah,
1: I I do. I actually really like to cook. I mean, especially like when I was making a movie, my last movie, School for Good and Evil on Netflix now. We shot that in (laughs) Belfast and it was during the lockdown. So it was really fun for me to reconnect because I've been so busy over the years. I haven't been cooking like I used to and everything was closed. So I would go to the store, get food and have like the crew over and make meals at the end of the wow. day. And it was so much fun. Just like throw a couple of chickens and roast them and got to whip up some vegetables and all that. So I like that really kind of family feel about cooking. You know, mm. when I first started cooking, I got really into like super finicky French cooking that's so, you know, precise. And then it was like, you know what, this is not how to do it. Like, it's just got to be fun. That's why I like Italian cooking is just like throw great ingredients into something, mix them up, heat them up and off you go.
0: Quite the interesting man you are, Paul. You're like the Dos Equis guy, right? You're, you're, you're a man, a man of many layers. So those are the that's the interest. That's outside, okay? That's a that's something that's coming in your head. Are you a collector? Is there anything that Paul is collecting?
1: Are you a yeah, guy like but,
0: the money has to go somewhere? You're not fucking it off. On just the, the food and yeah. alcohol. What are you collecting? What's the thing that that you say, this is my cup of tea and this is a place where I like to splurge? And this yeah. in is, I
1: mean, uh, I, I collect watches. I've got a lot of watches. Big know, watch guy. Yeah. I mean, big it's, watch guy. What is it about it? I think there's something about something that's so mechanical, you know, that has just been made by a person and it works and it doesn't have any, you know, computers or anything of just the elegance of a watch. And this is the way they feel like a great watch just feels so great on your wrist and the way they look and the different kinds.
0: Oh, it's all about how deep you want to go. I'll break it down. I mean, listen, the world knows I'm a real watch enthusiast, you know, like, and I'm deep into it. And the reason why is because of the foundation of time. I respect the idea of time at the highest level and what we do, we put so much time into the things that we love. And you know, Uh that time is, is past hours. It's, it's years, right? When you look back at it before you get to a place of reward. So for me, I'm attaching those time pieces to some of the things that got the best and biggest, moments of me as a person in time. So how do I highlight that? I mean, it's with the respected time piece. And then we even go, like you said, to the work that goes into it. You have some watches that that have over 348 different pieces inside. You have some that go into the thousands of little mechanisms that were all implemented into the foundation of that watch to make that watch tick correctly or chime to perfection. Like Mm. I'm a fan. Yeah. of watches. That's my space of art. So I get it. I yeah. totally get
1: it. You know, it, what, what I like about watches too, is they're not disposable. There's so much stuff in our lives is kind of disposable or you can go like, Oh, okay. I bought that, but I lost interest in it. So I'm going to throw it in a, you know, give it a good will or I'm going to throw it in a drawer or whatever, but like a watch, like a good watch is your baby, you know? And so it's like just this thing that commands respect and, you know, put it in the winder, put it, make sure that it's wrapped up, cleaned and all that. And there's something kind of lovely about that in this very disposable society that we live in now. So yeah, watches are great. Also, I collect weirdly uh, walking sticks. Um, I've seen them. I've seen you with them. I mean,
0: listen, they, That is an amazing accessory to some of these amazing suits that I've seen you in. And I love it. So when you say you're collecting, I mean, how deep are you going? Like, how in-depth are you going to get the perfect walking stick?
1: Well, I mean, I've gone all over the the world. On my travels, where I get somewhere, I will find out where they might have them, you know, especially mm-hmm. like in Eastern Europe or something. They have a whole history of having them. So I've got probably 80 walking sticks from all over the world. And they're all old, you know, because any new walking sticks are just canes. You know, there's a difference between a walking stick and a cane. A cane, you need a walking stick, you don't need. <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, and there's something about, you know, the old days that like, Guys would walk around, and women too, it would have these kind of taller ones that they would hold, not at the handle, but like in the middle. But that was just, you use them to walk around. I love affectations. I'm really into old affectations because I go like, there's a reason why people did this all the time. You know, it's like when everybody used to wear a hat, you know, and we've completely gotten away from that. Uh, I'd heard it was like basically when JFK got into office, he was the first guy to not wear a hat and he was so cool that everybody dumped their hats. But I miss that kind of thing. You know, I'm, I'm living in London at the moment. Occasionally we go to the races at Ascot. You have to wear like a top hat in a morning suit. And one of my favorite possessions is this top hat I bought that's a hundred years old. It cost a fortune, but it fits perfectly. It looks really cool. And I love that. You know, I would say the next thing I'm going to start wearing is a cape. So, uh, you so know, you know what
0: one. you, you've <laughs> quoted so many things through this conversation. I mean, you're so well read and informed right? And, and there seems to be like a thirst for just knowledge and history. And why? Was that something that was embedded in you from your from your parents and your upbringing? Or did you, were you yeah. always a person that just kind of searched for more knowledge? And like you said, wanting to know the why, were you always yeah. a person that was like, why,
1: why? I, mean, I had great parents, you know, and my dad was really, it, well, I, it's funny. My mom was really silly. She loved just silly, goofy, funny stuff. And my dad, like really more serious. And watched any show with a documentary or nature show and anything about stuff and news and all that he loved. And so I think that coupled with having been an only child. And so you kind of see the world a little differently when you, when mm-hmm. you're that because you're not kind of dealing with the struggle between you and your siblings and all that. So, and then I've always just been interested because as a writer, you know, and as somebody who's trying to come up with ideas, original ideas, you feed off of things out there. Cause you're trying to put together ideas. You know what I mean? You're going like, Oh, this is something I didn't think about, or this is something that used to exist, or this is something I could put my spin on. It is a thirst for knowledge, but it's a selfish thirst for knowledge a little bit because it's always in search of the new idea that you can then take to the next level.
0: I love it. I'm going to speak for my listeners here because I know, I know what I'm saying is true. You definitely get inspired after talking to certain people right and there's certain people that just have a high level of appreciation for this thing that we call life and Mm -hmm. the experiences that you can make in or create from this thing called life and just with the understanding of what things mean why they exist and how you embrace them and what they do. Listen, to you talked, I picked up so much from the reason behind you dressing the way you dress and the idea of an adult and the idea of a photo lasting existing, but your attachment and presence in said photo, the idea mm-hmm. behind the walking stick, the separation from the walking stick to the cane. you quoted so many different people throughout this conversation as well. It's dope, man, it's really dope just to see how the mind of others work. And <laughs> yours is one that I will forever just be a fan of, not because your body of work, but just because of how interesting you always seem to be, man. I'm serious, man, I'm really just intrigued by your process, by what you do and what you've done. I think it's dope. I got a doozy for you before yeah. we wrap up, if we come to an end. Mm-hmm. You've worked with so many right? Yeah. You've worked with so many, you've been a part of the amplification of some as well. Who have you yet to work with that you're like, man, if I ever get an opportunity, Kevin aside, we already I know. It's Kevin, it's Kevin in there. I'm joking. Yeah. I'm saying, and, of course. No, I, it's
1: true. Though. I,
0: I want to know who are you like, man, you know what? Like I've never gotten an opportunity to work with. I would love an opportunity to work with said individual or individual. If you had to give me your top five, give me your five. Oh man, oh, you're setting me up, man, my friend. Give me your five. Oh God, uh, in I mean, no order, in no order, in
1: no order. Oh my gosh, there's so many people I want to work with. It's 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 a it's a tough one. You know, I'd love to work with Meryl. Obviously, that would be very Legend. very cool. Would love to do that. If Beyonce ever wants to act, bring her on. Legend. Gonna... Gosh, oh, this is this is really hard, Kevin, because. Uh, yeah, here's why, my excuse for why this is hard, because I'm so driven by the property and the story that I'm always like, who's the perfect person to put in this? And it's very mm. rare do I kind of go like, I want to work with this person, so I'm going to find a thing for them. One of the only people I did that for was uh, Jason Statham. <laughs> Because I was such a Statham fan, and I was like, I got to work, with, you know, I got to work with Statham. And the great thing is when you become a director and you have a little bit of success, you can call these general meetings, <laughs> which I'm sure you're very familiar with, where you can just summon somebody to come, you know, to your office and talk to them. And I did that with Jason, and I loved him so much because he was so even more fun than I kind of thought he was going to mm-hmm. be. Because I thought he was so badass that I was like, I'm writing a part for you. And he's like, okay, and he said, you know, his manager told me, later, he said he's heard that a million times. But then I wrote the part and spy for him just because I, I thought it'd be so funny and so that was cool so yeah but uh he's great so, yeah
0: well then i'll ask you this thing I'll, I'll say we we've talked about so much but tell me what's next what's on the horizon for paul fee
1: i finished shooting and now i'm in post-production on this new movie with john cena and aquafina i love cena. john cena oh my god love
0: aquafina i've worked with both aquafina is amazing as well that-
1: Two comedy geniuses, I got to mm-hmm. say. They are so funny. And then Simu Liu from from Shang-Chi. Oh my He's God. Great. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And this its nuts. It's like, this is like kind of a glorified Jackie Chan movie. It's really funny. I'm back to R-rated comedy, which I've missed. My last, you know, two movies haven't been. So I'm having a great time on that. It's for, for Amazon and it's called a, a Grand Death Lotto. And so okay. As nutty as it sounds, <laughs> it, it's nuts. I love it, I love it. So that'll be at either end of this year, beginning of next year. And then one of the shows I produce called Minx is coming to, the second season is coming to stars starting on July 21st. And we're very excited about that. The first season was so much fun. Shit, man. Yeah, really fun. And then I have a cocktail book out called Cocktail Time, uh, The Ultimate Guide to Grown-Up Fun that's out on sale now.
0: The most interesting <laughs> man in the world. Don't you have a gin? Oh, I do. Don't you have a gin?
1: Yes. Well, it's funny you would bring that up, Kevin. I have my own gin that I've been doing for about five years now called Arting Stalls Brilliant London Dry Gin. Uh, go to artingstahlsgin.com to find it. And uh, yeah, we've won tons of awards. I'm a big gin fanatic, mm-hmm. talking about martinis earlier on. Mm-hmm. It's a passion project. You know, the hardest thing in the world is to get a liquor off the ground unless you're, you know, very, very famous. But, mm-hmm. but I actually made mine and I designed the bottle and it's my recipe and all that. So it's not just something I put my name on, trust me, but I'm very proud of that.
0: I love that, man. I love the alignment with the cocktail book for a guy that appreciates a good cocktail. And you as a listener should know that from him saying what he loves to do is eat and drink. The man is a man of not mystery, but just dopeness. That's what I'm (laughs) going to say. (laughs) <laughs> Paul Feig is the definition of dope. Paul, I want to say congrats, man. Congrats on season two, by the way. Thanks. That's a big deal. Guys, you heard him say it. It's coming out on uh, June 21st on Stars. and I love the fact that you got to work with John Cena, Aquafina, Simu. Oh, um, so I mean, look, all talented people, all like doing amazing things in the business and having the opportunity to work with you. I know something that I think as a highlight for them. Dude, our time is coming. I know it will. Uh, uh, and yes, I'm And definitely. I'm patient, right? I know that we'll figure it out, but I hope that you can feel my energy and the high level of enthusiasm that I had in this conversation just attach to your world of work, your body of work, what you've done. I can't wait to be able to say that I shared an experience with you and that we got something done and we get to put it under our belt, man.
1: I would love that, I would love that, Kevin. I, I think love you're the what greatest. You do. You always been so nice to me. I've known you for over 10 years. You've always been so nice to me. And I think you're so talented. And I just celebrate your success. Every time I see you go even higher is just, wow. It couldn't happen to a nicer person
0: it means the world to me suits and cocktails when i come to london i'm telling you i'm going to take you to my tailor i got a perfect person out there Suit for you some cocktails and a dinner i set it here so i cannot take it back
1: listeners hold them to it (laughs) that is my gift
0: to you just simply being you man i appreciate you
1: you are the best
0: ladies and gentlemen look this is gold mines what do you expect The unexpected should be your answer, okay? (laughs) We get to talk to amazing people and do what? Get inside their amazing minds. And today's show is no different. What an amazing mind this was. Ladies and gentlemen, the legend, coffee gold mines with kevin hart is a serious xm and lol radio production
1: executive produced by kevin Hart, ty randolph eric eddings and eric Wilde, with tastemakers media emil garner and ian mcdonald
0: go spread the word when you get a fresh hot McCrispy from mcdonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag don't try to wait till you get home always respect hot chicken The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.